0: Take a seat. Go and take a seat, everyone. Hello. Hello. Welcome to church. Welcome to church. Um, I'm Brian Williams. Some of you don't know me um, because you're new here, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm excited to get to know you. Uh, I am the Young Adults Pastor. Sarah and I tag-team things in terms of getting uh, ministry happening and meeting with people and caring for people and talking with people, and then Brian Howard and I tag-team things in terms of Preaching, he handles most of the load, which is fantastic, um, And uh, but it's a joy to get to be up here. Um, hey, guys, we're outside. <laughs> like, it's like so good. I, I'm so glad that we sang that song, So Will I, because it's such a good reminder that literally all of creation is singing to the Lord. What a cool thing. And it's faithful to its call. And we get to participate in that. And to come outside and to see creation be faithful to that. I know like for some of you, you're like, cement building. Beautiful. It's gorgeous. <laughs> for some of you over here, you, you get to see some of the trees over here. Some back there, you see trees. And I just, trees speak to me. I just love trees. Um, and something, I worked at camp for a long time, so maybe that's a part of it, fits in there. Uh, it's also just how God wired me, I think, but... I love being outside and getting to worship around trees because I just imagine as we sing, as we raise our hands, we lift our voices, those trees just reaching out their branches and doing the same thing. What a cool thing. But they are just so faithful in praising God and the wind blows and they sway to him, to his call. What a beautiful thing that we get to participate in that. And I think it's brought, made anew, brought fresh by getting to be outside. So I'm so glad to be out here. I hope you are too. I hope uh, you know tonight's not too hot, which is also a win. Um, but maybe we'll get cold, so watch out for each other. I guess if you get cold, I don't know if sharing jackets is appropriate at this time. I would normally say, "Dudes, you know, do your part," but I don't really know. So you guys work that out amongst yourselves. Sound good? Cool. Well, it's so good to be here. I last week was wonderful. This week, again, I get to see your eyes and hear your voices, and that's so good. One particular thing, I think it's so great, even as Bella prayed, to bow my head and pray and know, uh, not just have to like imagine the army of people praying alongside with me, but to be able to see it. To see the army of God, this battalion <laughs> that's going out to advance God's kingdom, that, that is calling on his kingdom to come present, and that that will overflow and impact the world. It's so good to be together. Guys, let's not take this for granted. Let's not take it for granted. Let's enjoy it. Let's tonight, let's, let's be so heavenly minded in, in even looking at God's word. And then as we finish worshiping, and then as we talk with each other, let's be so heavenly minded right now tonight that we're of earthly good. That we impact the world for good. Let's call on his spirit like we did at the beginning. Continue to do it. Even now as I preach, Lord like, Lord knows I need his help. We all do. But even pray now, Lord, be with us. Help me to hear what you have to say. Help me to know you more. And then make that fruitful in my life beyond just tonight. Because that's why we're together, right? Amen. Amen, someone? Thanks, Ty. That's what I'm talking about. Amen. Amen. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Uh, You always do, you always got my back. All right, well, we are continuing in the book of Mark. We've made it really far. We're still in chapter one. Uh, We're at verse 16. Um, So if you have a Bible or if you want it up, it'll also be on the screens, but I know like maybe 30% of you can see that. So, you know, a Bible or a phone would be helpful. So Mark one, we're starting in verse 16. We're gonna go 16 through 20. This is the calling of the first disciples. Goes like this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Then, sorry, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father's ebony in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right, that's our passage tonight. That's what we're gonna be speaking about and what we're gonna dive into. It's short. There's not a lot to it uh, on the surface, but there's actually a lot to it as we dive in. You know, this is the call of the first disciples, as I said, and uh, Simon, who would later be named Peter. So if you're confused or you've ever heard like Simon Peter, it's because his original name was Simon, And then Jesus was like, nope, you're Peter now. And he's like, okay. And that's why there's confusion, maybe. So we call him Simon Peter sometimes to add clarity. But Simon Peter, same person. His brother Andrew uh, is also a part of that. And their business partners, James and John, and their dad's name, Zebedee, which that's pretty cool. I like that, which means thunder. So they're the sons of thunder. That's epic. (laughs) Like, I want to be the son of thunder. Is that Thor? Yeah. Crazy. I actually just made that connection literally just in this moment. Wow. Cool. (laughs) Okay. So, these Galilean fishermen were the first people called by Jesus to follow him, to learn from him, to carry the legacy and wisdom and eventually the power of the gospel and the kingdom of God. As Brian mentioned uh, over the last few weeks and I'll mention tonight and next time I preach, we'll continue to both mention this. Mark's account of the story of Jesus is brief. It's the highlight reel. So he's not delving into all the details of each uh, episode. It's just the pertinent narrative facts. And there's certainly more to the, this particular story of the calling of these first disciples than what we see uh, in the details of the story here. The rest of the gospels give light, they give more detail to what's going on. In John's gospel, we have a story that sets up that uh, this meeting at the lake that Mark is describing, uh, it's not the first time that the guys have met. It's not the first time they've seen Jesus or met with him. They, they've met before and have some insight and ideas about who he is and what he can do. In Luke's account, which is an account of this same episode, we get a fuller picture of this formal calling of these guys to to come and follow Jesus and 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 see that this is more than a moment. Well, sorry, we see that this is more than a moment when we look at the the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in Mark, it's easy to think of this as a moment because it's so it's so short. But there's actually more to it than that. These guys have had multiple interactions. They they've got a bit of insight about who Jesus is and what he's about. In fact, uh, all four of these guys have seen and are aware that like. Jesus is the bee's knees. Like he can do stuff. He can do stuff that don't happen in the natural world. And he says things that are like, whoa, mind-blowing. They've encountered this a bit. So they're aware of him. They've got a feel for this guy is special. There's something epic going on with Jesus. Here in Mark, though, he lays out a very simple portion, a very simple, small thing. And I think it's important to stop and just point out and just talk about this for a moment because this is an interesting conversation and a pertinent one. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're walking through Mark, which like I said is the cliff notes. It's like he's like concise and on it. The other three have their own little variation and take on things. And I want to bring this up because in this specific episode, there are some very unique things about each one of the gospel accounts about this calling of the first disciples. And some people would argue that this specific section of scripture referenced in different ways by the four gospel writers is one of several clear contradictions that that nullifies the validity of the gospel accounts. I need to mention this. I need to bring it up. Maybe you're like, what? <laughs> like, We got to bring this stuff up because we've got to be biblically literate. <laughs> we got to know our Bibles and understand them. We need to understand the nuts and bolts of the Bible so that we have a foundation from which we can exercise discernment when we discover or are made aware of or are challenged with the realities of Scripture. That's unfortunate for whoever needs to read those lyrics. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you maybe didn't see that, but I don't need to get into it. Squirrel. (laughs) So, we need to talk about this stuff. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about the ways that Scripture presents itself, and even the ways in which that's complicated or confusing or hard to reckon with. If you have questions or want to talk about this stuff, um, especially about this particular instance, because I've you know spent some time working on it this week, <laughs> um, uh, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love for you to come and have conversations with me. Um, I'd really appreciate that. I like talking about it, and I'd love to have a dialogue. I know Sarah would as well. I'm sure Brian Howard would as well. But there's uh, one thing I'd like to say about this specific, four-pronged kind of presentation of the calling of the first disciples, and it's this. I do not believe that variation and contradiction are equitable. Especially in a narrative. Especially in a narrative. Now, some variations may be contradictory. That happens. But just because it's a variation doesn't mean it's a contradiction. Not all variations are contradiction. And I don't believe that within these accounts, there is nearly enough variation to nullify the accounts, not hardly. Now, that's my opinion. That's my perspective. There's smart people who think otherwise. (laughs) I don't fault them for it. There's a reason to have dialogue about it. You know, to kind of give a little bit of an example on why there'd be four Gospels with four different stories or four different, not totally different, but there's aspects that are within that. I want to give you a quick example. Hopefully you can see the screens. Maybe it will be helpful. So, let's say you got this friend, Jim. Everybody got him in their mind? Jim. He's a nice guy. Pretty nice guy, I think. Sure. Nice guy. Jim. So, you see Jim, you have, you know, hanging out. You're like, hey, Jim, what's up, man? So, what did you, you and your girlfriend do yesterday? And Jim responds to you. I went to the store, did some grilling for dinner, and, uh, well, Stephanie and I had a disagreement, but but it led to some good conversations. So that's his response, right? That's what he says they did yesterday afternoon. Then you ask Stephanie, hey, what'd you do yesterday afternoon? And she says, well, we, we ended up seeing Jim's brother and his wife, and guess what? Guess what? They went camping last weekend and ate hamburgers for every meal. Isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. It's, uh, that's just weird. I would never do that, right? But anyway, it's kind of gnarly, but uh, it sounded good to us. So we, we got burgers and had burgers for dinner, and it was a nice evening. It was a really nice evening at hey, Troy. So you've got these two accounts, right? There's clearly differences. It's pretty obvious. There's big differences. But you're all gracious and reasonable, reasonable people, you're smart people, you get it. You hear those two stories and make some reasonable, gracious conclusions about them. You give some grace to the variation knowing that the people have different perspectives and even different motives recounting the story, but that doesn't nullify the truthfulness of the story or the trustworthiness of the people who are talking. So we see in here, she doesn't mention the story at all. She doesn't even mention that they went to the store, but it was actually at the store that they saw Jim's brother and sister-in-law. You know, she says they had a wonderful night. He said they got into an argument, but ended up having good conversations out of it. You know, that could be different motives in there about why she didn't talk about that, but he did. She says they got burgers for dinner, and he says he did some grilling. He doesn't even mention burgers, but her recounting of the afternoon seemed to center entirely around them. She's really into burgers. He doesn't even mention that she was at the store with him. He says, I went to the store. Nor that he saw his brother. Or again, anything about burgers. Because he's focused on talking about the relational dynamics between him and his girlfriend Stephanie. And sharing that with you, who's such a kind and interested person. Who wants to know about such things. And is a safe space to do so. Good for you. Good for you. She focuses on the reason they had burgers for dinner. One's relational, one's topical, maybe, you could say. They're just different perspectives and different objectives in what they're communicating about. We get this stuff. We understand it. The variation in this two-account thing I just made up does not mean that one or both are dishonest. And all of us naturally bridge that gap. Right In our daily conversations and reading, we we do this every day. We process these things and we bridge those gaps and, and we believe the best. We give the benefit of the doubt at times if necessary. In this particular instance, we're talking about with these four Gospels and the account of the calling of the disciples, with the four Gospel accounts of Jesus' interaction with these two sets of brothers. I think the same thing is going on. I think it's pretty clear when you look at it. So we're not diving into all of them tonight, but I encourage you, go read them. Go read the four different gospel accounts of this event and kind of weigh through it yourself. Think about how this kind of fits together. And like I said, I gotta be frank and honest. There are very smart, reasonable people who who come to a different conclusion on this section of scripture than I have. There are, but that's why we need to talk about it. That's why we gotta be honest about this stuff and dive into it. It's not something to be intimidated by. It's not something to ignore, that's not helpful. It's maybe could even one day become destructive because we've got no foundation to build upon in our understanding of scripture and how God worked through these authors to convey his word and communicate what he intended to communicate. We've gotta understand these things so that we can stand on sturdy, stable ground. savvy? Cool. Makes sense? So, there is more to the story than what Mark lays out in these three, four, four verses. Yet yet within the gospel, according to Mark, there are included these few specific pieces of the storyline on purpose. He includes them on purpose. He's not writing an exhaustive history, just getting the key points recorded. So, while there is more to the story, he's like, here's the basics, guys. Here's the basics. It's one time at the lake, these two sets of brothers are working as fishermen, and Jesus calls them to come and follow him. And he tells them that he would make them fishers of men. And then they leave their boats and their nets and family and they went with him. It's just the basics. But these specific things are the basics of the story for Mark for a reason. And so that's why we need to dive into him. That's why we're walking through the book of Mark, because there's so much in here, even in how short it is. Because he boils things down to the basics, these basics, on purpose. So we should pay attention to him and see what we can learn from him. So verse 16, it begins like this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So you've got these brothers who have a steady, stable job. They're fishermen in Galilee. They're fishermen in Galilee. I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and it's pretty sweet. Our Palestine trip, we we go uh, every year. We would be here. We would be there right now, actually, if it wasn't for COVID. Tonight we would be there, not here. But we're here, and it's great and it's wonderful. <laughs> But we've, I've been to the Sea of Galilee, even to the, the town of Capernaum, outside of which this event is happening. The ruins of Capernaum are still there. And it's a nice place. Like It's a great place. The Sea of Galilee is beautiful. It's really pretty. It's a nice place to be. And the fishing industry along the Sea of Galilee at this time was super robust. And so uh, this little fishing village wasn't a slum, not hardly, not at all. It's not a prominent place to live. Also, not hardly, not at all. It's not a prominent place to live, but it's also not the worst. And fishermen, especially those that had a boat, were doing okay. Like they were doing all right. They had a steady income and were probably in a place financially to consistently have food on the table, which is a big deal during that day and age in that area specifically, especially with all the stuff that was going on. They're in a good spot. They had respectable jobs financially. <clears throat> that, was, that didn't work. Uh, <laughs> to shield the mic. It doesn't work when it's on your head. It's unfortunate. So they had respectable jobs. They had respectable jobs. But that doesn't mean they were high in social status. Not hardly. <laughs> Not hardly. Religious and scholarly acumen played a really big role in social status. And so the most respected people were those that were religiously pious and had academic prowess to be trained by a rabbi or a teacher. So the fact that they were fishermen meant they didn't have what it takes. They didn't have what it takes. They weren't good enough. And so Jesus is at the lake with Simon and his brother Andrew and he says to them this in verse 17. He says, come follow me. And like I said, we see in the other gospels that this isn't their first interaction with Jesus. Even, uh, we even see in Luke that this moment had a lot more buildup to it. So these guys are aware that Jesus is significant. It's obvious to them. They've seen miracles, heard some amazing things, at least overheard his teaching. And they're like, that guy, the guy who does things no one else has done, the guy who does things we're like, oh, this is epic. That guy's like, hey, come with me. And they're like, what? <laughs> me? Wait, seriously? He's like, "Yeah, come with me." Like, "Come with me. Let's do this." Like that would blow their minds. That totally blow their minds for a number of reasons. One just because naturally it's Jesus. And if he's like, "Hey, I like you. Come with me." You'd be like, "Oh." <laughs> right? Like you'd be like, "Oh boy." <laughs> like, That's neat. Really? No. Me? No. Like, it'd be overwhelming, let alone the, the societal structure that's around them and the fact that these guys are fishermen. So Jesus just does, does something in, in saying, come follow me to these fishermen. That's revolutionary. He's a teacher, a rabbi, as they would say in first century Palestine. And rabbis don't call people to follow them. They don't do that. At least not a rabbi that's any good. And Jesus is pretty good. And they can see it. They've seen him and know this guy's legit. So what is he doing? Why is he calling me? That makes no sense. He's proven himself and he's initiating with them? That's crazy. Fishermen who don't qualify for even the most basic discipleship. He's calling them. He's initiating with them. Rabbis don't do this. They don't do this. You know, it was a competition. It was a competition. I think most of us probably have experienced that or are about to. The competition of either getting into a school or getting a job or all of that stuff. It's competition. You got to fight. You got to prove your worth. You got to show, look how good I am. That's not how Jesus operates. He throws it out the window. We understand the competition. Students petitioned the rabbi to become his student, his disciple. They worked to show the teacher how worthy they, worthy they were to be his follower, that they were worthy to carry on that rabbi's teaching and that rabbi's legacy. Like what people think of that guy, Matt, like comes about because of the people who follow him. So it was a big deal. He took this seriously. Like it wasn't it wasn't four years of auditorium lectures. Rabbis have a precious few students over the course of their life, students who would leave home and family and follow the rabbi, learning and functionally living with them, emulating them in every way they could for the rest of their life. Like that's serious commitment on both parts. So the decision for a rabbi to accept a student had significant weight, it was a big deal. Thus, the student, the disciple, which means follower, had stiff competition and had to prove their worth, had to prove their competence, their trustworthiness, their superiority over others to convince the rabbi that they were the one who should be trained and have that close relationship with the rabbi, socially and interpersonally. Rabbis don't initiate. Students do. But not so with Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't sit back and say, hey, convince me why you're good enough to be my disciple. He doesn't do that. He goes out and he initiates the relationship. Jesus took the initiative. And by society's standards, you might say he isn't very good at reviewing applications. He's just not very good at it because he picked these guys. Like, what was he thinking? fishermen? What a fool. (laughs) You can say that about Jesus. He does foolish things in our (laughs) worldview, But his ways are the right ways. They're higher than our ways. It may look upside down, but it's the right way to do it. And Jesus is not good at reviewing applications. And not just with these four guys, but later on down the line, Matthew, Judas, the 12 disciples were not socially relevant and some not even socially acceptable. Yet those are who he picks. Those are who he calls. They didn't prove nothing to him. Yeah, he chose them. In Mark, in his concise Cliff Notes Gospel, he's intentional to include information that is helpful and specific to convey these important aspects of the choosing of the first disciples, which would have been very evident to the reader of this in the day it was written. They would have understood it. And the two things that that this communicates to us just on these first two verses is one, that Jesus takes the initiative, and two, It's not about how qualified you are. Jesus takes the initiative and it's not about how qualified you are. The pattern he establishes with the first disciples continues today. Continues today. Being a Christian is not about, it's not a divine game of where's Waldo. Do you guys remember those books? Anybody like done a where's Waldo? They're terrible. (laughs) Right? Like, I remember as a kid, I worked so hard. And I'd be like, there he is. And my brother would be like, nope, he's not holding the cane. I'd be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, that's him. I worked so hard on that. Oh, where's Waldo? Tough. I, don't know, I haven't done one for probably like, I don't know, 20 years. Has anyone done a Where's Waldo recently? Were you successful? Was it easier as you get older? Oh, good. Maybe I should come back to it and redeem that Where's Waldo experience. <laughs> it's rough. Being a Christian, becoming a Christian is not like where's Waldo. It's not like hunt, hunt, hunt for him," and then, "Oh great, you found Jesus." No, biblically, like, like, as we see exemplified with these disciples, it's not we who find him, it's Jesus who finds us. It's Jesus who finds us. And likewise, it's not about being worthy. None of us are 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 worthy man, I think some of us need to kind of internalize that. And that sounds terrifying because you're like, my whole life is about fighting to be worthy. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is when we finally accept and receive that we're not, we see how beautiful and good he is and that he redeems us and chooses us anyway. We understand how loved we are and that is the most freeing thing you can experience. You're not worthy. It's weird, but embrace it. (laughs) Embrace it and experience the freedom that comes on the other side of that. Amen? Amen. You're not worthy, amen? Amen. (laughs) But Jesus is. And Jesus loves you. And Jesus chooses you. He has plans for you. Jesus models that by picking guys that clearly did not have the adequate credentials. He's the one who makes you worthy. It's not you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. If you have your Bible, actually go ahead and open there or go uh, on your phone because you might not be able to see on the screens. This is a big section we're gonna read. Uh, I was gonna read, actually, I was gonna read two through, four through five, but I'm gonna read one through nine because four through five gets the point across, but I could not just stop with four to five because this is so good. It's so good. I can't help but share more of it. Paul writes this. He says, starting verse one, as for you, to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Verses four and five says, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Elsewhere, Paul writes, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He initiated. He initiated. He came for you. He's coming for you. He's calling you. He's going as out of his way for you. And it's not because you're worthy of it, but because he loves you. It's not because you've earned it, that's what I mean. <laughs> because he sees the value in you, because he created you. You're his precious person. <laughs> that works. I want to encourage you, challenge you even. Memorize this passage this summer. Memorize Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Remember, it's Jesus who takes the initiative. He calls us to relationship with him, which results in new action with him, new life with him, and the overflow of that life into a world desperately in need of it. Verse 17 continues. He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. What a cool wordplay! Way to go, Jesus. You could be a preacher. <laughs> right? It's all about the word plays. You got to use the right words at the right time, apparently. I don't know. Getting better at it. Maybe not. Robbie's shaking his head. Oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Jesus says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, so, this is a two-fold call, right? He says... Follow me. That's the first part. Come follow me. Learn from me. Do life with me. Live as I live. Come follow me. That's the first invitation. The second is an invitation to be reoriented. And I will make you fishers of men. He says, I will make you. You will become. This is a gradual process of becoming through following. Come follow me and become those who redeem the souls of men, not just fish for the belly, but souls for the kingdom of God. This invitation stands for us today as well, all of us. But there are two things that I want to point out specifically about this. One, this calling specifically, I will make you fishers of men. I want to point this out. It's Jesus who does the work of reorienting. It's Jesus who does the work of transforming. He says, I will make you. It's Jesus who does the work. It's the power of God that brings about our ministry and effectiveness in seeing the kingdom of God manifest through us and into the lives of others. You know, in my office, I have written on my whiteboard a a couple of phrases that are important for me to keep coming back to. I I write them because I, I easily go astray. I don't know about you guys, but that's something that happens to me. I usually wander away from what's the main point? What's life about? What what am I doing here? What am I accomplishing? And so I have some things that I scribbled in terrible writing in the corner of my whiteboard to continue to look back and see. And one of them is this. God equips the qualified and qualifies the follower. God equips the qualified and qualifies the follower there's something you're longing to do with your life, if you're like, wow, I want to serve the Lord. I want to do good in this world. I want to advance God's kingdom. One, you got to be equipped to do so, and it's Jesus who does that. You can go out and uh, preach all you want. You can go out and sacrifice all you want, but it's Jesus who makes that fruitful for eternity. He's the one who does the work. You got to be equipped, and he equips the people who are qualified. How do you get qualified? follow him. (laughs) Follow him. It's actually really easy. You just say, oh, okay, sure, I'll go. (laughs) Like you go where he's going. You say yes to him. And that's a simple, simple thing, really. That's a simple place to start. But in doing so, every time we say yes, every time we just follow where he's going, we follow. We seek to be near him and alongside him, to know him and be like him. He's qualifying us and equipping us for greater and greater things, for eternal things. The second thing I want to point out is that vocation does not limit Jesus. Your job doesn't limit Jesus. Jesus activates your vocation for kingdom purpose. He activates it. Jesus doesn't uh, reject the earthly vocation of these men, but he reorients it. Jesus calls Simon and Andrew to be fishers of people. And in so doing, he's affirming their former work while like projecting the new role for which he's calling them. It's kind of like he's pointing out like the doppelganger of their work. He's like, you're fishermen, but you're gonna be fishers of men. Looks really similar, but one is a little bit different and actually super, super valuable. (laughs) Like, it's a beautiful thing. You know, most Christians are not called to leave their jobs and become wandering preachers. Some maybe, maybe some of you, I don't know. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but most people aren't. But either way, every Christian is called to ground our identity in Christ. Whether we leave our jobs or not, a disciple's identity is no longer fisherman or tax collector or anything else except follower of Jesus. Anything else except follower of Jesus. So whether you're preparing for a job or a career or you're in one or longing for one, I don't know. We all, all must resist the temptation to make our work the defining element of our sense of who we are. I'm a pastor and that's important for me too. Being a pastor is not my identity. Follower of Jesus is. And that's not the same thing, by the way. (laughs) Follower of Jesus is who I am. Follower of Jesus is who you are. We must resist that temptation to make our work a defining element of our sense of who we are. And we must resist the misnomer that secular vocation and sacred purpose don't mix. Secular vocation and sacred purpose do mix. That's the point. (laughs) Because the demands of the kingdom of God cut across and override the usual principles of society. And because of that, They are transferable. They enlighten our work. They enlighten what you do. They infiltrate and influence it. Jesus doesn't supersede our work. He doesn't supersede our work. No, who Jesus is, what he is into, and what he is up to manifests through your work. He comes into the middle of it and he reorients it and he makes something beautiful out of it. That's what the, that's the business Jesus is into, not just with your work, but your life, the world, everything. He's not about going out there and going like, crush, (laughs) I'm going to start over entirely. He's about coming into the midst of something that's already there, including you and saying, I'm going to make something great out of this. He doesn't throw the clay off the wheel. He reshapes the clay into something useful and beautiful and good. Vocation does not limit Jesus. Jesus activates vocation for, the, for kingdom purpose. And I just want to encourage some of you. You may look at your job and you're like, I don't know what I can do to honor God. It's really not about what you do. It's about who you are. Do you walk into your job? Do you walk into your class? Do you walk to the grocery store or filling up your gas? Is, it, is everything you do walking with Jesus? Identified, flowing through, seeing the world, as he sees it, seeing trees worshiping. (laughs) That's maybe weird, but (laughs) you could talk to someone if that's like really happening. Um, So verse 18, he continues. At once they left their nets, so they responded, right? These guys are called, I'll make you fishers as a At once they leave their nets and followed him. Their action, they responded, they went for it. And Mark is clear, there was no hesitation. They left their nets. They let go of their norms, they let go of their security, their stability to embrace something, to embrace someone higher and greater. You know, last week, Brian Howard talked about repentance and how as you move You repent, you plant your foot, and you turn. It's an action. One of the key things about that action of repentance is good intentions don't do anything. (laughs) Good action does. Good intentions are empty if they're not followed by good action. The same is true. They responded, the call of Jesus on your life, are you responding? Do you have intentions to respond and then you're you're comfortable in that or are you actually responding? Good intentions and good action are not the same thing and that's in no way to shame because it's not about works but it is about authenticity. It is about authenticity. If I tell my wife over and over I love her but never show it, who cares if I say it? I gotta do it. I gotta live it. I gotta be it. I might intend to love her, but fail. I gotta keep working to, to not fail, to actually love, to actually express and do and be. So, continues in verse 19. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, they called, him, or he called them, that's Jesus, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So, you got these other brothers. They're in their boat. Uh, in other ways, we can kind of surmise uh, that they're probably business partners. They, they probably work together. Um, James and John and their dad and their people and then uh, Peter and Andrew. Uh, maybe even Peter and Andrew are a part of that, that enterprise. They work for Zebedee. Makes sense. His name's Thunder, so I would follow that guy. Um, So they're in their boats. Jesus says, come follow me. And they respond without hesitation. As I said earlier, and I've said multiple times, I keep saying it because I just want to make it clear. I want us to continue to remember to take scripture as a whole. The details Mark includes are the basics in his view. And that means he's including them on purpose for these two sets of brothers to call uh, the call to follow Jesus is more than just a challenge to leave behind some income and stability or as we might put it our comfort zones Mark's account of this incident records a detail that isn't in any of the other ones and that's specific he says that they leave their father Zebedee with the hired men they themselves are not hired men They're not laborers, but rather were a part of what was probably a relatively successful family business. There's some depth to that. As Susan Watts Henderson notes uh, about this, she says this, piling up of the particulars underscores the weight of the verb to leave. Not just nets are left behind, but a named father, a boat, and indeed an entire enterprise. See, for these disciples to follow Jesus, they have to demonstrate a willingness to allow their identity, their status, their worth uh, to primarily be determined in relation to Jesus. And that's how it worked in the day. If you were to follow a rabbi, it's not that you disliked or disowned your father, but you became so associated with the rabbi that in essence, he could be your father because he was the source to which you would understand God, would give you life, spiritual life. Your earthly father gave you physical life and that is good and worthwhile and beautiful, but the rabbi gives you spiritual life and that's higher and more valuable. So they would leave their father. In their paradigm, that's a big deal. In our paradigm, that's a super big deal. (laughs) It's a really big deal. It meant job. It meant family. That's a high cost. Raise your hand if you want to leave your family behind. Never mind, don't do it. It's a joke. (laughs) Some people might be like, oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah." (laughs) It's okay, man. It's all right. It's part of life. If you need to talk, come talk with me. I'm here and available. I would love to talk with you. Um, Man, do I get distracted. In our, in our situation, what we see from these guys, their willingness to leave these things, their willingness to step out, honestly, you can start somewhere. Maybe you don't have a boat to leave behind or a bunch of nets, but maybe your phone or whatever's distracting you. Maybe it's being willing to leave behind your reputation, you know, asking for help, confessing struggles, being vulnerable, speaking truth when it's not in fashion, being gracious when it's painful, you know, doing whatever it takes to to follow Jesus, letting go of anything that hinders you from being with him. That's the call. Sometimes that's what it takes. Every time that's what it takes, actually, I think. Every time. <laughs> Being willing to let go of other things if it means we get to grab a hold of Jesus, or actually Him grab a hold of us. Because <laughs> He's a gentleman, He's not going to rip us from things. He allows us to decide if we want to go. We just have to say yes. And He'll take our hand and He'll take us to incredible places. To follow Jesus, we have to demonstrate a willingness to allow our identity, our status, and worth to be primarily determined in relationship to Jesus. So I have one last thing to kind of march through in this. And it's, I really think we were looking at the call of these guys. Now let's step back a moment and reflect back on, we have a unique vantage point. We can see the end of their lives. Actually, when the book of Mark was written, some of these guys, their lives hadn't ended yet. <laughs> They were still around, serving the Lord. But we get to see where they ended up, how their lives ended. We're just going to look real quick at these four guys. Peter, martyred in Rome about 66 AD, crucified upside down. Andrew, martyred by crucifixion in Greece. James, martyred by the sword by King Herod Agrippa. John, banished to work the mines on the island of Patmos. all of these guys, all four of them, suffered these things because they continued to proclaim and follow Jesus as Lord. That's where they ended up, literally giving up their lives, suffering for the sake of others to know Jesus and for them to know him more as well. These men, the story we read in six, verses 16 through 20, these men set out not knowing that end not knowing that this discipleship would so enrapture them that they would willingly suffer immense physical pain and death to continue in it. That first step of faith to follow after Jesus, when we look back at all of it, for all of its weightiness of leaving boats and nets was actually cheap compared to what they eventually gave up to follow Jesus. They walked away from their boats and nets James and John walked away from their father. And like I said, there's no reason to think they like abandoned their father and never spoke to him again or anything like that. But they certainly stepped away from family business. As we look comprehensively at the four gospels and the accounts of Jesus calling these disciples, it's not the first time these guys interacted with him, saying it again. They had met him, had seen like, okay, this guy. Whoa, who is this guy? And they're in their boats. He's doing things men can't do. He's been identified as someone special by someone we really respect. In John's account of the first meeting of Jesus, Andrew even questions, is this the Messiah? So they're leaving the nets and boats and homes was not because some guy Jesus called them to come follow him. It wasn't some guy. They had seen him. It was Jesus calling him and they had already seen that there was something epic going on with Jesus. And so he was worth it. In that moment to step away from those boats, they'd seen enough to know he was worth it. He was worth leaving boats and nets and a family business. He was worth it. And if you read the four gospels, And see these guys walk with Jesus, learn from Jesus, observe and obey Jesus. Their commitment to him and his calling grow stronger and deeper until Jesus is crucified and their hopes are like dashed and they're all confused and adrift. And Jesus rises from the dead and they're like, what? And it's also still confusing for a while until they start connecting the dots and the Holy Spirit shows up and and they're empowered, reoriented to fulfill that promise, I will make you fishers of men. And eventually, their abandonment unto the reality of Christ Jesus as Lord leads to their martyrdom, to their death. That's a leap that happens over a lifetime. It's not immediate. Those guys were willing to walk away from what was familiar. They were willing to change their routine, even their job and future plans, to walk with this guy, Jesus, because they had seen something. They had met someone so remarkable, the risks of change was worth it. If it meant finding out more about this guy, Jesus, they didn't take that step away from their nets and boats and family blindly. There was reason for it. And that first step in following Jesus led to more steps of following Jesus and more reasons to keep following him and more reasons to further risk their comfort, their desires, their own lives in order to stay by his side and live with him and live like him. I, hopefully, you've heard this quote before. Martin Luther King, he's really well known for saying it. If you've got nothing worth dying for, you've got nothing worth living for. You know, for him, uh, it was Christ who led him to the places he went. It was the call of Jesus that prompted and guided him in shouldering the burden of leadership in the civil rights movement. It was a commission from Christ to go and be a signal fire of justice achieved through the principles of God's heavenly kingdom. If you read that quote, if you've got nothing worth dying for, you've got nothing worth living for. If you read that quote, hear that quote, and shudder and think, am I willing to die for anything? Asking yourself, do I care enough about anything outside of myself that I would give up my life for it? If you're asking that question, yeah, me too. Me too. I guess the encouragement is to most all of us then, probably. Do what these first disciples did. Respond to Jesus' call to follow him. It may mean adjusting your routine. It may mean reorienting your life and work, but Jesus will prove himself worthy of the risk. And if you keep following, you will know the value of Jesus as Lord and he will make you a fisher of people. (laughs) In his gracious, loving, patient way, he will commission you to advance his kingdom in ways worth dying for. Today, right now, it's not a big leap. It's a small step. You don't have to be like, I'm ready to die for Jesus. Let's go right now. If you're at that place, praise the Lord. (laughs) But if you're like, whoa, (laughs) it's okay. You don't have to be there right now. We just have to say yes and follow. And in time, he'll give us something worth dying for. Not because like, well, we have to have that, but because he will prove himself and we'll see over and over, wow, he's worth dying for. And we'll arrive at that place where at the end of our life we can see something like this and say, yep, I had something worth dying for. I lived a life surrendered to something greater than myself. to the greatest thing you could surrender it to, to Jesus. So don't worry about what might come down the line. Just focus on what you're being faithful with right now. Focus on Christ because whatever you let go of in order to follow him will be worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for uh, this sometimes complicated Bible. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that you partner and trust and so wildly (laughs) surrender this sacred text that people may interpret it. Lord, may we learn from from these words, from these people, from these texts, uh, something valuable, something life-altering. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who don't just have good intentions, but have good actions, that don't just uh, want good things, but work to see them come into fruition, are willing to let go of what needs to be let go so that we can know you more. Lord, help us. Each and every one of us to follow you, Lord, we surrender. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, for the ways and times I've failed. Forgive me, Lord, for the empty words I've spoken. Lord, forgive me and restore me receive me and redeem me Lord because only you can make something good out of this Lord improve yourself I want to see want to see how good you are so Lord I'm going to come I'm going to go with you I'm going to follow you I trust and I hope and I expect that I'll taste and see how good you are and that I'll keep wanting to follow and that you'll show me more and I'll keep wanting to follow and that eventually I'd be willing Lord even, to let go of life itself, to be with you. That's how good you are, Lord. I, I say this in faith, I pray this in faith, that that'd be true for every one of us, Lord. Would it be, Would we be willing to follow, to pursue you above everything else? In Jesus' name, amen.